Morning, church. Good to be able to see you here. I'm glad we were able to celebrate Easter together and celebrate this occasion. I'm just going to share a few things with church life first, and then we'll dive into the message and we'll continue through the service inside here. First of all, that uh, next week, uh, Chaplain Tony Hunter will be uh, sharing the message with us, and his message is based on hope. Uh, have you got it? And that's what he's been asking you. And that's next week. Tony Hunter will be sharing that message because uh, I'm away. I'm going to be preaching out in California at uh, Calamasa Church Retreat, and Pastor Elias away as well, and he will be leading at Andrews University, helping out with the music and worship conference teaching there as well. Uh, when I return, we're going to start a, a new series, uh, a two-week series on the road, the road to Emmaus and the road to Damascus. And so I encourage you again to read the daily walks that we've been doing in preparation for the message next week and the messages forward as well with that. Today with Easter, uh, there's a lot to going on today. It's a long day. It's a beautiful day. Um, and I want to make sure you have a worship guide. If you haven't got a worship guide, if you put your hands up, uh, we'll make sure you, you get a worship guide. Uh, inside here, there is uh, the one thing, and inside there you'll see a little bit of the details of what's going to happen uh, with Easter today, all the things that we're doing, including uh, the afternoon concert that we have at 2 p.m., and, uh, and for those of you strong enough and brave enough, you're welcome to also go to the, do the hike up Sanitas. I've done that once. I feel like if you've done it once, it's enough. Um, but there are others, including my wife, who feel that uh, you should run it. Uh, that is in the future. Uh, and so a very far, far, far future. I don't want to put that pressure on myself, nor you. Uh, so, but I want to encourage you to do that because it's, it's a fantastic day. Stay, eat lunch, connect with people, and do, and do so. I'm going to invite Thomas up here. Uh, we have a few other really important church announcements that we want to share with you. And um, Thomas is going to share with us about Ithaca. Uh, good morning, church. Um, as you know by now, I think um, Betty Thacker passed away last week. Um, uh, who knows who Betty Thacker was here? Pretty much everybody. Uh, Betty was a, a member of this church for many, many years. I actually think she attended um, pretty much every day, um, pretty faithfully till the end of her life. Um, her memorial service will be at uh, Fraser Meadows uh, in Boulder uh, on April 29, uh, 4 p.m. That's about two weeks from today. Uh, I just wanted to share with you quickly, um, I don't know about you, um, uh, your own memories of Betty, but to me personally, um, Betty was a really nice and generous lady, um, very much uh, involved and helpful to the young adult uh, in this church at least uh, when I was still a part of that group. Uh, I came to Boulder uh, about nine years ago to go to grad school at CU, uh, CU Boulder here. And I remember the very first Sabbath when I came here, um, Betty was one of the first people I met, um, if not the first. You know, she took me to her Sabbath school downstairs after, after the service or before, I think you did that before. And um, she invited me over for lunch uh, afterwards. You know, from that day on, she really adopted me as one of her own. Uh, she was really like a mom or, or grandma to me. Um, I remember she would come to our place. We used to rent a, a, you know, a small house with uh, a few other students, CU students. And she would come there uh, pretty frequently on a regular basis you know, to drop uh, bags of fruits, uh, making sure that we would eat uh, healthy. <laughs> she was really much involved. I got baptized in this church. Um, and she offered me the, the great controversy series, the you know, Desire of Ages and, and all that, uh, the series of books. She, um, 
she noticed that I had a, what she called a cheap bike. When I came to Boulder uh, from my country, um, I had purchased the bike at Target, one of those cheap bikes, to just get around. And uh, so Betty noticed I would ride the bike every day to church. She noticed that, well, that bike, it's a good one, but you probably can have it better. So one day she took me to a shop, a bicycle shop, and, uh, and purchased a brand new uh, mountain bike. Uh, I didn't give a penny for that, just a gift. Um, I still own that bike, actually, uh, to this very day. Uh, very much involved, um, making sure that I needed what I, uh, what, that what I needed to succeed at Boulder, CU Boulder, that I had it. She, she was really supportive. Uh, I remember my first year of uh, my master's program, I got an internship at IBM. And at the time, she was like, well, you have this bike that I purchased, but that's not good. You can't ride this bike to, to, your, to your internship. It's IBM, after all. Uh, so why don't you come home and I'll, you know, lend you my, my, my car. So she gave me her car for that summer, and I used it as a transportation means. Um, she was so dear that I, I had to tell my, my, my parents back home about her. So when my mom visited um, in 2010, after for my graduation at CU, she thought, well, uh, the, the house we lived that was too small for me to host my mom there. So she, she offered up her house, uh, and she said, well, I'll, I'll host your mom for, for her stay. Uh, she would come, uh, pick up my mom, uh, take my mom to uh, dinner, lunch. Um, she registered my mom to uh, an English as a second language for, for foreigners uh, for her stay. And she would come on her, you know, pretty faithfully grab my mom, take her to various places in, in Boulder as I was going to school or as I was going to work. So she was really, really much uh, helpful to me. Uh, very dear. We say live love. To me, Betty was, uh, was an example of that. Uh, I can go on and on. The list is, is, is pretty long. We were discussing about it today in uh, the old members of the young adult groups. Not today, but this week when people started finding out that she uh, had passed away. I just wanted to share a few things that um, uh, some of us had to, to say about Betty. Um, you know, she was a great addition to our Bible study group and fellowship. She would actually host us very often for Bible study at her place. She was very helpful and generous with, young adult, with the young adult group at Boulder for many years. Betty was an amazing person, so helpful, supportive, and kind. So um, the bottom line is she was a very dear member of this church. So I would encourage us to attend this memorial service two weeks from today uh, to celebrate her life. Uh, to me, I think that's the very least I can do. Uh, thank you. Life is very precious and life is very short um, and, uh, and it's fragile as well. And as of yesterday at uh, 1.20 p.m., Ron Sackett uh, fell asleep in Jesus as well. Uh, and if you knew Ron, he would sit over here and Karen and Betty and others as well with his family as well, but uh, Ron fell asleep yesterday. They will be holding a funeral service on Monday and uh, we will send out uh, an email uh, to everybody to let you know where it's gonna be on Monday afternoon. But there will be a full memorial service that will take place in May. Uh, so if you are available and you see the email and you're welcome to come and join us, and please do come and join us to, uh, to celebrate uh, with the family uh, on Monday afternoon. The things with, uh, with funerals is that uh, we, as believers in the Word of God, we hold really truly and hopefully, you do too as well, that you believe in the second coming of Christ and the resurrection morning. 
And so it, while it is difficult and painful for us, it is also very hopeful for us as well because we know that in Jesus, life will come back again and it will be restored to what it actually should be. So we'll look forward to that glorious morning. Um, with that, let me, uh, let me pray for you and then we're gonna dive into the word today. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for the heavy question that you've laid down on us. Who do we say that you are? Who do we claim that you are? Who do we sense that you are? And I ask God for your courage and your spirit to be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. I recognize that it is a, a huge privilege to be able to stand here before you, to recognize that you have your sacred journeys as, as you're traveling through, and, and there's a lot of things going on. It's been a heavy, heavy week, heavy month for some of you as well. Things that are processing your life, losses, uh, stresses that you have. Some of you are waiting on results uh, from health services to see what's going on in your life. Some of you are waiting on your exam results. Some of you are waiting on your taxes. Some of you are waiting on your marriage results as well as you're wrestling through what's going on in your marriage. And I know that it is very heavy sometimes and can be overwhelming to be able to deal with all this kind of stuff. So we come to church and we breathe. We actually just pause for a second, we breathe. And it's not like breathe where my watch, you know, it'll tell me every now and again, uh, would you pause for a second and breathe? And, and my watch does this to me. I, I'm not quite sure what it's really trying to do because I look at it and I'm thinking, I am breathing. Uh, I really don't need you to tell me that. But, but it does do that. But, you know, I, I kind of ignore it. But on Sabbath and coming here to worship together as a family, we get to really breathe together. And we did that this morning by beginning with what Pastor Jessica led us through with the foot washing. And if you were able to take part in that, it's, it's a brilliant way to be able to do this because that's what Jesus did. We want to be able to celebrate the same thing and do that. And Peter understood this entirely. And I'm really glad because Peter, when, when Jesus washed his feet, he actually said, Lord, why are you washing my feet? And the Lord explained to him that this is because he wants to show him that he is part of the community and that he is equal together, and that God makes a difference. And Peter says, wash all of me. Thankfully, Jesus said, no, feet will do. And so we have kept with the tradition of just feet, and that's fine because it is only a symbol. And the symbol is powerful because it's who, who did it. Jesus did it, and he called us to that. So in Easter this week now, we've been celebrating it. Maybe some of you have spent time in preparation through the Passover celebrations, or you've, you've prepared by reading the Daily Walk, and you've read the passages, and you've actually read uh, the prayers as well, and read the Psalms, and you process all of that. I hope that you're able to reset your clock this morning. And the very first question that I want you to wrestle through as you reset the clock is found inside your worship guide. So if you open your worship guide, uh, you'll see here there are some recalibrate questions inside here. These are questions for you to wrestle through. You can join a class afterwards. You can share this with your family or with, with those near you. But the very first question I have here is what question do you need Jesus to ask you? What question do you need Jesus to ask you? And for that, I would say this. Timing is critical to the question. Making sure that you know when to ask the question and making sure that you're open to receiving the question is important. Timing is everything. It's so important. On Monday, I was sitting down with a friend of mine, Joel, sharing with him just how we're, we're going to do a whole series of renovations downstairs. And if you go downstairs, you'll see what's going on and painting. And I said, I realized that some of the elements were missing. We have to remove all the ceiling tiles. And Joel said, hey, not a problem. I'll take care of that. And with his team, he came in yesterday and ripped out all the ceiling tiles downstairs there. Then Isabel and Kerry had to come and clean the church extra. And then we had Johnny Hodgson with his team who came and laid down the floor. I mean, just 
timing lined up all perfectly to make sure that it was ready for today so that we could come together, there wouldn't be a whole load of mess around, and we were ready for Monday morning when the painter arrives and he starts painting all the walls. Timing's really good. Sometimes there's small timing things, like you know when you're driving along and you see the spot, or the place that you need to park, and the person reverses out just as you turn up. That's fantastic. I love those moments. You just like pull in and you're like, that is why I left late. Uh, because I could get the spot right here. The timing is kind of purposeful. Sometimes there's really big timing events where you have to, to plan those out. Like when you're going to propose marriage. When I, when I proposed marriage to Becky, um, I wrote uh, a letter to her father. She was in Seattle. I was in England. I wrote a letter to her father, uh, asked for his permission. He said yes, which was good. It was a good start. Then I wrote a letter to Becky because we would write to each other on a regular basis, right? We'd write pretty much every day. We have these boxes of all these letters that we would, we would write to each other. This is before the invention of the internet and, uh, and other things that took place. So it was in the 1800s. So we wrote to each other about this kind of stuff. We sent off these letters. And I proposed marriage to her in writing through the letter. Well, she called me. Uh, and, and I thought the letter had arrived because it was pretty fast, right? So we're talking on the phone, and she doesn't mention anything about the letter. So I'm thinking, man, this is not, this is not good. I, I, I had all the timing. I, I had planned this. I thought our, our relationship was developing. This is the right moment. And just silence, not a single mention of this. So eventually, eventually, on the phone, because I, I was not even focusing on the phone, I said to her, did, did you get the letter? And she's like, yeah, yeah, sure I did. I'm like... Did you get, did, you know, the other letter? <laughs> I don't know. Did you get the letter that I asked? You asked what? And so then I proposed on the phone, and it was a fiasco. It was terrible. It was, it was, it was horrible. It was horrible. It was like I was kneeling down on the stairway of my stairs, my house. It was, it was weird, right? So it, it just, it, fortunately, she said yes on the phone. It was good. And so then she flew over later, and then I, then I proposed again. I got the engagement ring, and I drove like five hours with her. I wouldn't give her the ring until we drove five hours to this cathedral in Truro in southwest England, and then I proposed properly. And unfortunately, she said yes the second time, so it was all good. Not that she said no the first time, just making sure you understood the story sequence and there. So, timing is really important. Those things are really important to us. And Jesus understood timing so well. I mean, he was the master of timing. He knew what to say, what not to say, when to be silent, when to be spoken. I mean, he just knew everything all the time. And his ministry was a ministry of being timed just perfectly at the right things. Because I have to ask the question, which you have to ask as well, why now? Why two and a half years into your ministry, Jesus, did you choose to decide to say something? So I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible, grab the one in the pew, page 911, Matthew chapter 16, verse 1. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, same version you guys have inside your pew there. And remember that you can take these Bibles with you, take them home, you can mark in them, put them back in the pew, share them with someone, uh, but they're there for you to be able to use. So Matthew chapter 16, verse 1, page 911. And this is a, a pivotal switch that takes place in the text here, a pivotal switch that happens in the story inside here. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came to test him, and they asked him to show a sign from heaven. This is it. The Pharisees and Sadducees came together. Mortal enemies who didn't like each other, disagreed about theology, disagreed about how the church should actually exist, came together because they wanted to attack Jesus, to test him, to push him, because Jesus was breaking all the molds. 
I mean, they thought, maybe he's the Messiah, right? But when he came to the Messiah, they wanted someone who was going to overthrow political power. But Jesus came along, and he had this irresistible message of hope. That's all he said. They didn't do the political overthrow. They didn't understand that. They thought maybe he was just a rabbi, a really great teacher, but he didn't come from any of the recognized schools. He just spoke with authority and clarity. So they thought maybe he's a priest, right? He must be a priest. Well, he did. He spoke about the law. He spoke about the church. But when he spoke of the law, it was liberating. It wasn't like the law was like a heavy burden on their life. They're like, I want this. I need this. With the law, I am a better person. And so he was just blowing their minds when it came to this. Then they thought maybe he's a prophet. But he kept on saying, John the Baptist, my cousin John the Baptist, he is the prophet. Only later on does he start to actually enter into that world. Jesus took all of those categories, Messiah, rabbi, priest, prophet. He filled them up and he overflowed. He said so much that he couldn't be contained. He broke the mold of who it was because Christianity is Jesus. There's nothing else. Christianity is Jesus. You may want to redefine it. You may want to write your own mission statement. You may want to write your own values. You may want to make your own logo. You can do whatever you want, but it comes down to the core. Christianity is Jesus. It's not an ideology. It's not a philosophy. It's not just a social ethic. It's not a moral view. It's not just a teaching. It's not about just justice. It is Jesus. He is the beauty. He is the truth. He is the goodness in Jesus. We would refer to him as the way and the truth and the life. You see, conversion, when you decide to follow Jesus and you're converted, conversion is not because of a clever argument that somebody's given you. It's not because of words that I've actually said to you. Conversion is not just that you change direction. Conversion is actually that you change your connection. Do you understand that? Conversion is that you change your connection with Jesus. You now are connected to Jesus. The more you are connected to Jesus, the more you actually start to follow him and the more you belong to him in this way. Now, here's the thing. If I were to tell you, like, the top 10 reasons why you should love me, or maybe the top 100, uh, you know, I, I, it, would be, it would be pretty good. I could actually also do the same for you. I could say, what are the top five reasons that I could love you, or two? Uh, I mean, there, there's lots of reasons, right, that exist why I would love you as well, but... These reasons mean nothing without an experience, right? I, my words mean nothing without action following inside of it. And we have to experience each other to know that we truly do love each other. We look after each other. Not that I just say it, not that you just say it, not that we just believe it, but we are part of this entire thing. So Jesus spends two and a half years with his disciples. They are experiencing him. They're not just listening to his words. They are seeing his actions, and they are seeing who this man is, and they are wrestling with the ultimate question that Jesus says, I think I need to lay down to you. And here is the question. It's found in Matthew chapter 16, same text, page 911. So if you have your Bible still, turn back there. I'm going to read this portion. Verses 13 to 20, Matthew chapter 16, 13 to 20. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist. Others said Elijah. Others said Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? 
And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged his disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So, why Caesarea Philippi of all places? I got some photos here to show you. Thanks to Gordy, he's been out uh, to visit there a few times and some other people. And so I just wanted to give you a visual of this because it's important that you understand that Jesus' timing and Jesus' location and Jesus' thinking through all of this knows exactly what he's doing. He wanted them to go to Caesarea Philippi for a particular reason. So this is about half a mile, if we see this photo, this is about half a mile from Mount Hermon, which Caesarea Philippi is actually at the base of this mountain here. Next slide here is that this is the actual, the actual site today, and it has the rock face inside there, and you actually see a cave entrance. Oh, it's over there. You see a cave entrance over on the left side there. Oh, there you go. You see the cave entrance over there. I want you to remember that cave. That's pretty significant inside there. The river, uh, the streams that come from the mountain actually feed the River Jordan inside here. And then we're going to zoom in a little bit to one of the niches inside here. And this is where they placed uh, their, their gods, their different gods. And, and that's actually, uh, oh, oh. Don and Cindy, there they are, over there. That's Don and Cindy sitting up there. And it's not because they're gods, uh, but, but I just want you to know that that's them over there and they're over here, so they're human. Um, and uh, that's the kind of the size perspective so you can get an idea in the rock face where this actually took place inside there. And then we have an artist's impression of this particular area. So that was the rock face. Obviously, it's been demolished a lot of the way, but you would have the, the great temple in the center, uh, the gods of the pagan gods on the side, and Panis and the river coming through. And this is where they came. It was the center of pagan worship was Caesarea Philippi inside there. And I want you to know this because they built all these shrines. Caesar Augustus in the middle there, he, I mean, he was famous that he had solved the civil war in Rome. And when he, you remember this, that when he took over, he declared that there was good news in the land. It's the phrase good news. He said, there is a new emperor in charge. And because Caesar Augustus was in charge, he said, doesn't matter what you think, I'm telling you that Caesar's in charge of the entire universe, that there is peace in the entire land, that he has arrived. Jesus comes along a few years later and he says, I'll tell you the good news. It's not Caesar Augustus. I am the good news. And he co-ops this phrase from Caesar Augustus and declares the good news that we use still to this very day inside there. But Jesus takes them north to the border to that city of Caesarea Philippi. He wants to stretch their wings. He wants to push them into a place of confrontation a little bit. And he wants to ask them, the ultimate question. I read the book Simon Sinek a few years ago, and I, maybe you've seen the TED Talk, maybe you've read his book, Start With Why. I loved it when it came out. I kind of remember it was five, six years ago when it came out. I thought it was great. He said, before you do anything in business life, anything at all, before you get to the how and the what, you need to know the question why. Why do you do this, right? And so I started to think about church that way. I started to think about my life that way. I started to like apply all of his rules to my life thinking, yes, if I know why I do this, then I'll know how and what I do with this. But you see, this is just a system. It's just for proposals. It's just for ideas. But if you want, and if you want, vision, 
If you want vision that lasts beyond us, if you want vision that goes beyond our lives, if you want vision that supersedes any system, then it's not the question why that you have to answer. It's the question who. This is the most important question. This is what Jesus does in his question. He's not asking them to explain why he came down here. He's not asking them to explain why he's going to go to the cross. He's saying, who am I? Who am I? And if you believe who he is, it changes the why. It changes the how. It changes all of that. Question number three in your worship guide. I'm going to skip number two and go to number three down there. What do you need to see, hear, or understand to be able to confess that Jesus is everything? Isn't that a good question? It's a hard question, right? What is it that you need to see, hear, or understand in able to confess that Jesus Christ is everything? Because some of you are hesitating when it comes to Jesus. You're hesitating when it comes to Christianity and saying, is Christianity Jesus? Yes, it is. If it is, why are you hesitating on that? Now, missed in the English translation of this particular text, when Jesus asked the question. The Greek has it inside there, but the English translation just seems kind of bland. You have to have like an interpretive reader read it with a Shakespearean voice to be able to understand how significant the word you is inside it. In the Greek, it makes sense straight away, but in English, it just reads like a normal question. Who do you say I am? It includes so much. It includes ignore everyone. It includes embrace all that you have seen and heard and studied. Start with a blank slate. It includes, look in the privacy of this place right now. Be honest with me. It includes, death may be on your doorstep, but I am with you. It includes hearing the voice of God the Father. It includes that you follow truth wherever it takes you. So when Jesus says, who do you say I am? He includes all of those ideas inside there. This is what Jesus was asking. So Peter declares in verse 16 of the text there, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And without missing a beat, I mean, just super fast, because Jesus has perfect timing, right? I mean, he's famous for always capturing the moment that we're in right now. He's listening to the Spirit as the Spirit leads him on his ministry on earth. He always sees things before we see it. So, you know, you read in the Bible, it says, Jesus said, begins the story, says, there once was a sower. You know for sure that within walking distance, within visual sight, there probably was a sower right there. He said, there once was a sower. And you're like, yeah, you mean like that summer? Yeah. And he casts seed, and Jesus captures the moment right there. He tells them the story. There once was a man traveling down from Jerusalem. And you're like, oh, I know about this story. He got, he got attacked on the road. Everybody knows it. It's hot news on CNN. It came in as a Twitter alert. And Jesus captures that moment and says, I'm going to tell you something amazing inside here. So looking around. Where is he? Caesarea Philippi. He knows where he is. It's a rock quarry inside here. The cave was the cave to the entrance to hell. That's what they believed. They would sacrifice people and throw them inside the cave there. He looks Peter right in the eye, and he says to him, I will build the church on your answer, Peter that you have said that I am the Messiah. You are this rock. He probably grabs a rock and holds it. He says, this rock here, I will build this rock. And get this, the church, the church will walk through the gates of hell and destroy it. Nothing will stop the church. He's visually just capturing the moment inside here. 
That's why he brought them to Caesarea Philippi inside there. And just in case you get carried away, and you're like, oh man, Peter was so fantastic. Jesus is using a metaphor. He's not saying he's a rock because in the Bible, there is only one rock, and that is Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. There is only one person who has power over the grave, and that is Jesus who declared that he is the life and he is the resurrection. And there is only one alpha and one omega, one beginning and one end, and that is Jesus Christ. For in one verse, <laughs> in one verse, and you turn with me back there, page 9, 1, 11 in, in Matthew, in one verse, you watch just what happens inside here. Uh, one blink of the eye, one single moment takes place, Peter crashes. He just said, Peter, I'm going to build the church of you. And within one verse, Peter crashes. This is what happens in verses 21 to 24 of Matthew chapter 16. From that time, and this is the phrase that tells you that everything changed at that moment, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. And the chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Peter wants to establish the church without a cross. He wants to establish the church that is going to prevail against the gates of hell without a cross. He wants to follow Jesus without a cross. Luke, when talking about a similar passage inside, a similar moment inside, it says this, this cross is not a one thing. This cross is a daily thing. Every day you take up the cross. So question four that I have for you, and this is a hard question. How has following Jesus interfered with your life? How has following Jesus interfered with your life? When you know the who, you can't resist the vision. You call to change, you're called to grow, and you're called to love everyone amongst us. The artists among us all get this. They do. They really understand this. Really, it's quite simple. They, the artists, the photographers, the painters, they get this straight away because when you take a picture, when you draw something up, you can see straight away what it is, but you know that you're trying to capture a moment inside there. And that picture, that moment, that dish, that thing that takes place, that's only just a fraction of the entire story inside there. When I was a kid, I went to a, a woodwork class when I was 13. It was the only time I ever had this woodwork class, and, and I, oh, I loved it. I really did. I love woodwork. In fact, honestly, I, I really wanted to be some kind of carpenter when I was 13. I wanted to work with wood. Now, I'm pretty much scared of wood because I'm scared I'm going to splinter. Uh, and, uh, and so I'm, I'm, I'm really, I wear gloves if I touch wood. Just I'm scared. But back then, oh my goodness, the idea of touching wood and working with it. And I remember this. I remember the class where I was building uh, a very simple piece. The only project that I had to build was one plank of wood and two legs on the side so I could take one of my Lego cars that are in my office. You should see the Lego cars. And I'd rest the two wheels on the side and it would sit in my room. And I, and I built this thing out of wood. It took me all term to build this one plank of wood and two pieces on the side inside there, but I remember, I remember the smell of the class. I remember the, the, the green floor and the blue uh, furniture and the machinery all broken. I remember the glasses that were all shattered inside there. I remember the smell of the glue and the varnish and my teacher, and I just remember so much fun inside that place inside there. And yet, all I have to remember it is that one piece of wood. So what I do is I kind of lock all of those things away. And I feel sometimes we do that with Jesus Christ. 
We look and we lock so much of him away. We suppress so much of him away. And we live in that moment. And we should be living fully embracing that moment. So the two final questions that I have for you, I'm gonna wrap together in questions five and six. Who do you need to forgive and confess? Who do you need to forgive and confess? This is hard because we're a people that are very comfortable talking to each other about things, but not actually asking forgiveness of each other. When we apologize to each other, it's kind of like, hey, uh, you know, let me say something over here, and if I smile at you, then you should understand that I've apologized. Instead of actually saying the words to each other, I am sorry, I should not have done that. The difficulty is that that's just a human response. And the only way you're able to actually forgive somebody and confess that you've done something wrong and embrace the forgiveness somebody gives to you is if you embrace who Jesus Christ is. Shadrach Meshach Lockridge is his name, otherwise known as S.M. Lockridge, was the pastor of the Calvary Baptist Church. He fell asleep in Jesus in 1993, and he preached these words. I'm going to share with them a little edit of these words here, but I think that these words describe to me. And when I read these, I am fully embracing of who Jesus Christ actually is. He says this, the Bible says this, my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory, and he's the Lord of lords. That's who he is. Who do you say he is? My king is a sovereign king, right? No means of measure can define him. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast, immortally graceful, imperially powerful, and he's impartial with his mercy. That's who he is. He's the greatest phenomenon that ever existed in time. He is God's son. He is the sinner's savior. He is the centerpiece of civilization. He is unparalleled and he is unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature and he is the highest personality in philosophy. He is the fundamental doctrine when it comes to theology and he's the only one qualified to be our all-sufficient savior. Who do you say he is? He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tired. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and he sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captive. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the aged. He rewards the diligent and he beautifies the meager. That's who he is. He's the key to all knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. And he's the gateway of glory. And who do you say he is? Because his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. And I wish I knew how to describe him. He is indescribable, right? He's incomprehensible, he's invincible, and he's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind, and you can't get him out of your hand. You can't live without him, you can't live without him being inside your life. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, they found that they couldn't stop him, Pilate couldn't find any fault in him, Herod couldn't kill him, the death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him, because he is Jesus, full stop, all full stop. There is nothing else that we do than celebrate who he is.